Well, good morning. A couple, uh, before we get to the sermon piece, we got a couple things to cover. First of all, I just want to say thank you to Kirk for filling in last week. We were supposed to start Judges. Uh, I ended up uh, getting sick. I'm doing a lot better uh, now. Uh, but if for some reason about halfway through the sermon I start uh, talking about something else, just just go about your business and it'll be okay. I'm a little foggy, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get through it. Uh, this is the longest I've been out of the house since last like Wednesday or something like that. So, um, <clears throat> But then also I, I just know that this, there's a lot of sickness going around. And I know a lot of folks have had to make adjustments over the last couple of weeks. Trading schedules, that I know can be difficult. You're texting someone to fill in for you and such, and all, all our schedules get out of, out of whack. But just want to commend everyone for your patience and serving one another. So thank you for doing that uh, through this time. Uh, second is this personal development assessment. Um, let me give a little bit of uh, one way to think about some of this. Um, I was at a, a workshop just over a decade ago or around a decade ago, and one of the speakers said uh, that the most dangerous uh, place in the church are people in the low to mid-30s. They're in the most dangerous time of their life. Now, he didn't unpack that because the conference wasn't about that, but that caught my attention because I was in my early to mid-30s at the time, um, and so I did a lot of reflecting on that, and I, I I definitely think he was onto something. I think, it, I think the low to mid-30s is one of the most dangerous times of your life. And one of the reasons why that had caught my attention was not only where I was, but that's the way Crossway historically has been, has had a lot of folks in that demographic. Um, and I, again, he didn't unpack that, but as I've reflected on that, um, on one level, I think he's right. There's, there's something that happens in your low to mid-30s at times. A lot of folks, if, if you end up getting married in that stage or couple years before that and have kids or whatever it is or or you're not married and you're you're advancing in the career life just starts to to happen and life is chaotic especially if you have young ones running around the house you're just trying to get through the day right just trying to make it to Friday and relax a bit and the idea is that that can be very dangerous spiritually because by the t- you don't want to get to your 40s and realize that that whole decade you just were surviving because then you're going to be in a bad place by the time you're 40, and then by the time you're 50. What can happen is that oftentimes we get in this, these modes when life is crazy, and we think, well, I'll, I'll, turn, I'll turn something on when I get through this setting or, when I, or this stage of life. When I get to the next thing, then I can really pay attention and, and, and hone in spiritually. Uh, and I just want to say that it's never going to happen. It's always the next thing. Because uh, where I don't agree with what he said is now I'm in my almost mid-40s and it's still crazy, right? It just doesn't get any different. Um, and so I still feel that same tug. And what this, this is trying to get after is we want to be a place where people are pursuing growth at all seasons. Uh, whether you're in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, I'm sure if you talk to someone in their 50s, they will tell you the temptation to coast is very high. And we don't want to be coasters. Uh, and so this personal development assessment is trying to, yeah, I know, that sounded funny. Uh, <clears throat> it, it's meant to just pause and say, okay, where, where am I? Where, where am I strong spiritually? Where are there places where I can grow? <clears throat> In no way is this meant to make us feel bad, 
but it's meant to expose areas where we could really use some growth. And it's meant to be, then we reflect on it and say, okay, for this next season, I can pay attention here. So we are asking, the elder team is asking everyone at Crossway to prayerfully go through this assessment. This is a, a sort of a pared down assessment that we do with the elders and the deacons. Um, we simplified it a little bit. And uh, we're, we, uh, you can think as the elders interact with you, you can expect that from time to time we will be asking, hey, how, how did your assessment go? Did, was anything revealed uh, during that uh, in the assessment? Is there something from that that God helped you to see this might, uh, you might focus on this as you seek to grow in the Lord over the next year? Um, we're all going to be different, but uh, we, we are asking if you could prayerfully uh, go through this and see how the Lord might direct you. Um, <clears throat> so that's that, uh, but be on the lookout or be, if, if, if we talk about it. <clears throat> All right, with that, uh, we can move on to Judges. Exciting day. Uh, we haven't been working through a book of the Bible in a while. We finished up Revelation sometime early October, then did that series on prayer, then Advent, and then some Purpose and Pursuit sermons. Uh, and here we are, ready to jump into Judges. Uh, we're going to do an intro sermon like normal. Uh, that's typically what we do at the beginning of every book in the Bible. Just try to get the big picture of what's going on in the book that will help us uh, then as we dive into it. Uh, if you remember, uh, some of you have been here for these before. There's a formula that I like to use as I think about the big picture of the book. Uh, we look at the author and the audience. That's the this historical situation. So we take a look at that. Uh, then it's author and audience plus the argument of the book, and that can uh, include things like the tone of the book, themes we see in the book, or the structure of the book, the way the author is trying to get a point across. So we're going to look at the argument. What is he trying to get across in his uh, book? So it's the author and the audience plus the argument of the book equals the aim of the book or the goal of the book. Every biblical author, when they picked up their pen or quill or whatever it was to, to write this book, they have an audience in mind, and they have a goal for that audience. And so we want to take all of our data, not so it's just data, but try to get uh, an understanding of what that author is trying to accomplish in the reader. And so that's what we want to look at. We're, we'll mix it together a little bit today, uh, but it, it will be a little bit content-heavy as we look at it today uh, to try to get a big picture. And then we'll ask the question, uh, why, why might this be a great book for us to read as a people? And we'll end uh, with that. But uh, to get started, though, uh, we're going to do a little pop quiz. Peter, if you want to come forward. I, I found someone to do a pop quiz for us. If you remember when we did First uh, John and uh, Revelation, we had Drew do this for us. Uh, so, Peter, if you can get 50% right, you're going to get some... Uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. So this is just a way we're just going to get a little bit of data points out for us. And uh, this is just more of a fun, creative way to do it. So uh, I did tell uh, we were going to do this with judges. So that was okay if you studied. Did you study up for it? I did not. Okay. All right. Well, this might not go good for you then. <laughs> not just kidding. Um, all right. We got eight questions. So first question, how many chapters are in the book of Judges? I think there's 21. Wow, but 21. That. That's, hey, that's all right, 21 chapters. That was, yeah, that, that, that one really deserves a round of applause. <laughs> that was impressive. 
Um, all right, question number two. Uh, Judges is primarily written in narrative literature, so it's stories. But there is one other major literary genre or type of writing that is found in the book. What is it? You said the first was like stories? Yeah. I mean, it's historical, I guess, so if that's the same thing. Well, so we would, we would say it's like historical narrative. No? All right, yeah. So there's, there's a song or a poem, uh, and that's uh, in chapter four, or excuse me, chapter five, the whole chapter, uh, by Deborah. It's actually probably the brightest place in the book, the one real bright spot in chapter four, which is a, uh, it's a poem. But the rest of the book, 20 chapters are all narrative. <clears throat> all right, question three. You're, you're batting uh, 500 right now. It's still pretty good. How, how many judges are there in, in the book? I'm going to say, do you go with the biblical number of seven, or do we shoot a little higher? I'm going to say seven. That, that's, that's a good guess. Um, so he guessed seven. Um, it, it's 12, actually, oh, 12. Okay. Uh, but that, think, biblical, uh, like biblical number, right? Mm-hmm. So the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, so there is 12. Uh, can you name four of them? Uh, Deborah, Barak, um, Gideon, Samson. Well, 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 so the Deborah Barak one is kind of questionable, but we'll give, we're going to give it to you because that <laughs> that one is uh, what's that? There you go, Japheth. Wow, this guy's good. So all right, you got that one. that one. That's that's good. Now, what what you'll see throughout the book, there's really six narratives. Uh, there's six judges that have an actual narrative account, and then there's six that is just a quick word about them, that Tola served as a judge for this long, and then he died. Uh, so six of them, some call it major, minor judges, uh, whatever it would be, but there's six and six. All right, uh, let's talk about the, the role of a judge. So choose all that apply. Okay, so what, what is the role of the judge? A, legal decision maker, B, tribal leader, C, a military leader, or D, religious guide? Oh, man. Certainly a military leader. Um, probably a religious guide to some extent. Um, So, okay, so there's a legal decision maker, tribal leader, military leader, and religious guide. I might say tribal leader, too. Yeah. Maybe not legal. Okay, yeah, yeah. So you're saying B, C, and D. Um, so the, the answer is all of the above. Um, so the, the legal one shows up, that, that one's a little bit more questionable. Throughout the Old Testament, that's typically what a judge is going to do. In this book, it's pretty well not demonstrated, except for Deborah, who technically maybe isn't a judge, but she's doing what a judge should be doing. In chapter 4, she is making legal decisions. Um, but they, they clearly are tribal leaders, military leaders, and they should be religious guides. And you get that in the programmatic statement, as we'll see, that they're, they're supposed to be guiding the people religiously, but they don't always quite do that. So um, 
Anyhow, they have a lot of hats. So when we think about judges, don't think about strictly the way we think of judges, which is legal matters, deciding uh, who's right and wrong. It's broader than that in the biblical sense. So it's tribal leaders, military leaders. God was going to deliver his people through the judge, and they were meant to have a religious guide to them. All right, we got three more left here. Um, what book comes before Judges, and what two books come after Judges? Two books after? Yeah. Uh, so Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First, Second Samuel. That's right. Yeah. So Joshua is before, and then Ruth and First Samuel, which gives us our time setting uh, biblically uh, in terms of biblical history. You have Joshua was bringing uh, the people that come out of Exodus or out of uh, Egypt in the Exodus, um, and then you get to Joshua. Joshua is the time of the conquest where they were to come in and take over the Promised Land. And then uh, we have this period that we're in in the Judges that is meant to be the settlement. It's sort of Sort of like the, the cleanup crew actually fulfills um, ultimately what Joshua had started. So um, there's still work to be done after Joshua dies to take over the land and fully settle into the promised land. And that's this period of the judges. Um, leading up to uh, Ruth, which if you know the book of Ruth, it actually starts out in the time of the judges. So that's actually taking place in the same time setting as our book. And then 1 Samuel uh, starts off with Eli being a judge, and Samuel, the major character in 1 Samuel, or one of them, um, is a judge himself. And he's the last judge, and that's going to take us into the monarchy, where Saul is actually crowned king. And so you have uh, one other thing to recognize. Joshua was over all of Israel, Right? He was, he was the, the leader, military guide, uh, religious uh, guide over all Israel. Um, and Saul, or Saul, when he comes on as king, he's going to be king over all of Israel as well. But in, in our time period, you have more tribal guides, tribal leaders, all these judges. There's not one judge that is over all of Israel exclusively. All right, so that's kind of our time frame of our book. Um, the other thing I guess we would say is that, that, that this time period is characterized as a, a very dark period of, of Israel. So it, that's the way it's looked at. This is the, the, dark, the dark days. Um, but they, four judges show up in the New Testament, in a chap, famous chapter of the New Testament. What chapter do four judges show up in the New Testament? Ah, right. Hebrews 11. That's right. That's uh, the Faith Hall of Fame, and that's where the author, 1132, says, what, what, more shall we, what more shall we say? For time will fail for me to tell of Samson and Barak and Gideon and Jephthah. And then he says, and David and Samuel. So uh, that, that is quite amazing, because when we talk about who these characters are, uh, that the author of Hebrews would actually put them in the Faith Hall of Fame. Um, all right, and the final, finally, historically, who has been most often considered to be the author of Judges? Samuel. That's right, Samuel. That's well done. All right. I, I don't know if you got it, but there you go. <laughs> he did. All right. That's great. So, yeah, historically, it, it has been thought that Samuel is the author of uh, maybe he is, maybe he's not. Uh, let me give you a couple places where you can make that case, because uh, I think it, it is a good option. 
If you go all the way to the end of the book, the very last verse starts out, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Now that phrase is going to show up four times in the last five chapters, actually. In, the, in those days there was no king in Israel. That, that seems to be written from the perspective that as the author is writing, there is a king, right? Because it's, it's almost like, it's like he's writing back and looking back at a time period and says, in those days there was no king. In other words, now as I'm writing, there is a king, okay? So that, if that's the case, uh, then it would mean that he's writing at least after the anointing of Saul, because Saul was anointed the first anointed king. So that would be a, a time period where he needs to be writing after the anointing of Saul. Um, and then there's one other really helpful thing in chapter 1, if you flip back there. Chapter 1, verse 21. says, But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And it's that phrase, to this day, uh, that is key. So he's talking about a people in Jerusalem, the Jebusites, who are still there at the time of the author writing, right? To this day, as I'm writing, the Jebusites are still there in the city of Jerusalem living with the people. Now that's a helpful um, piece to see because in 2 Samuel chapter 5, after David is anointed king, um, or it actually takes over as king. So David, if you remember, was a king in a certain region of Israel uh, for the first several years. And then he's crowned king over all Israel. And one of his first acts uh, as king over all Israel is to take over Jerusalem. And he gets rid of the Jebusites. And so uh, what these two markers then would say, it seems to be that the author would be writing sometime after the anointing of Saul and sometime before uh, David takes over the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so that very well could be Samuel, because Samuel was the prophet that anointed Saul as king over Israel, and he's the, the king that anointed David as king. Remember, David was anointed king in 1 Samuel 16 before he defeats Goliath as he's a young boy. Uh, he was anointed earlier, but he w didn't reign as king until Saul was dead. But it very well could have been Samuel at either some point during Saul's reign, or early on in David's. Now, part of why that's important to see is, as we're reading a, a text from the scriptures, we're, our question is not only about what's the historical context in the book, right? The, the historical setting in the book is between Joshua and Samuel, the time of the judges, but the audience is after that. And so we're, we're asking the question, what's going on with the audience's setting that the author is trying to tell the story in this way for the audience? Because if you just take, for example, there was more than um, the six judges that we actually get historical accounts about. We, we know for sure that there were six other ones that he chooses not to really pay attention to. Except, and instead, he's paying attention to these particular judges for a theological purpose. A lot of other things happened during this time period. So what we have is a sort of a the select theological history 
right? The author of particularly grabbing certain events from the history of Israel during this time period, telling the stories in a particular way for his audience during the t- either the reign of Saul or the early reign of David. So if you think of that time period, his first audience time period, um, it, they've come out of several hundred years of darkness, where the word of God, we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the word of God was rare. And the, the coming on of Samuel, if you remember that scene in chapter 3, God uh, speaks to Samuel three times, you remember? He'll, he'll say Samuel, and Samuel runs get, tells Eli, Eli's serving as the judge at the time. And Eli is sort of like, he, he, he doesn't even get it. Like, you, you sort of get the picture that the, the, the very judge of Israel, when God speaks, doesn't have a clue that it's even God speaking. And so it just gives this picture of this very dark time. But when Samuel came on the scene, it says that the word of God began to spread uh, all the way from the top to the bottom of Israel. And the word of God began to, to go and really start to change uh, this, the surroundings. Except what happens is that the people still declare they want a king instead of God. So when the people of Israel wanted a king, that in itself isn't necessarily a problem. It's the way that the kind of king they want. They want a king instead of God, like the kings of the the people around them. Um, They don't want a king under God. They want a king instead of God. And that's a major problem. And so it's very possible that the author then is trying to stir up the audience to not just want any old king like Saul, because he's not going to solve our problem. We need a righteous king. Because if we have a righteous king who would be a king under God, he would lead us into righteousness. He would, he would make sure we stay on the path, not like Saul. We need a righteous king. And so it seems the author really has this heartbeat. I'm trying to stir up the audience to long for a righteous king. One who would guide God's people. One who would be a king after God's own heart. Okay, so that's our, our author and our audience. Let's talk about the argument. How, how is the author going to go about making his case is the question we're going to ask. Uh, and one of the things I like to do, you may recall, is I like to look at the beginning of the book and the end of the book right away, the top and the tail, sort of like when you're watching a movie. Those are, tend to be some very important parts of the movie, right? You always want to see what happens at the very beginning. You, all, you need to see what happens at the end, otherwise you don't get the point. Uh, and so you never go to the bathroom at the beginning or the end. You, you have to see the beginning and the end. So we can just take uh, the very first line of the book and the very last line of the book gives, paints a, a pretty nice picture for us of what's going to happen. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? That's really good. This book has started fantastic. We're coming out of the conquest. Joshua, uh, we're told, has died. And what are the first things that the people say? Lord, what shall we do? Who shall go first to, to follow through with your commands to take over the land? That's very good. right? We are off to a great start. Let's go to the end of the book. The very last statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? Started off really great. 
and it ended terrible, right? So a, a lot of stories uh, in the scriptures and in our, you know, our culture start off bad and they end good, right? This one starts off very good and it ends very poorly, right? So again, this is a very dark period uh, of Israel. <clears throat> so even just looking from the top of the tail, we can see that. Uh, let's take a look then at more of the structure. There's a, a graphic that goes along with this. You don't have to like memorize the graphic. This, for me, this helps me to fully understand what's going on in the book. Uh, I'm just going to walk through kind of the major structure points of the book so you can see how he goes about making his argument in the book. So uh, we have, if you just look at the big picture, you have a double introduction and you have a double conclusion, or double intro, a double outro, and then you have the main section in the heart of the book. So this first section, um, the book starts off really good, but you don't have to go very long until you get into a bad bad taste in your mouth. So if you even go down to verse 5, uh, they, they, their first campaign, they, they found Adonai Bezek, he's, he's a, a king of the land, uh, as they're going to come take over at Bezek, and they fought against him, defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And then you read in the next uh, line here that they took him to Jerusalem and eventually died there. And he... Now, if you know kind of what they were supposed to be doing, that should stick out and say, whoa, 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 hold on, what? They did what? They're supposed to destroy the king, right? Because they were supposed to come in and take over the land and destroy everything as God's judgment upon the people. These, the people in the land, uh, they sacrificed their children to the gods. And they did all sorts of things that were rejecting God, and God was bringing judgment upon them. And now they're letting this king live, but not just letting him live, they're dismembering his body, that, that, that's the very thing that this king did, the very thing that the Canaanite himself did. Uh, the Israelites are now beginning to look more like Canaan than they are like Israelites. And in fact, one author uh, actually calls the book the, the Canaaniz- Canaanization of Israel. Uh, in, in that the people were supposed to go in and being a shining light to the nations of the glory of God. And what they did, they went in and they became like the very people themselves. They didn't go in and become more like Israel. They became more like Canaan. It's the Canaanization of Israel. And you see it right away early in the book. They're now starting to look more like the Canaanites than they are the people of God. Now, as this chapter goes on, it uh, only gets worse by the time, you know, they, they're, they're, they start going in the land, they start taking over, but you get to verse um, 19. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. They, they what? Israel has God on their side and they can't drive out the people? What's going on? And then you get down to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean. Verse 29. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Echo. Verse 39. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. In verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of Dan. 
you, you get to the end of chapter one and you've just, it's like somebody pulled the parachute and it started twisting. You're going down fast and you say, what in the world just happened? How did we go from Joshua? As things were going well, the conquest had started. The people said, yeah, we're going to serve the Lord too. And now the whole conquest, the settlement has been a, an utter failure. What in the world happened? Well, chapter 2 then, we're, we're told about the rebellion of the people. And that's how that first introduction closes. And then we have the second introduction that really is demonstrating the paradigm for the whole book, you would say, or this programmatic statement. The chapter chapter 2, by and large, from verse uh, verse 6 to chapter 3, verse 6, is going to demonstrate why chapter 1 happened. So chapter 1 is telling us the situation. This is what happened as they went into the land to try to expand the settlement. That's not good. Chapter 2, or the second intro then, is going to tell us why that happened on a theological level. And so it's going to give us this this paradigm of the cycles of what happened in the history of Israel. Um, So let me walk you through that. This is the the, the sin-rebellion cycle. If you start in chapter, uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, so you can see the programmatic statement of the whole book. It's going to show us exactly what's going to happen in the the middle section of the book uh, in this cycle. So verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's going to be a phrase that shows up again and again throughout the book. And the people did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is step one in our cycle. The people of Israel rebel against God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from other gods of the pe- from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Asherah. That's step one of the cycle. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. Step two in the cycle is then in verse 14, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now notice in chapter 2, there is no particular judge or anything we're talking about. There's just, or, or certain people group. It's just in general. Verse 14, step 2, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. So that's step two. First, they, they do evil on the sight of the Lord, and then the anger of the Lord is kindled against them, and in God's anger, he handed them over to their enemies, or they, he, he, he uh, sold them into the hand of their enemies, who um, caused them great distress. Step three, then, is that the people are in distress, and they cry out to the Lord. And you see that in the middle of 15, at the very end there, right there it just says they were in terrible distress. Verse 18, we're talked about their groaning. They're, they're crying out to God. So first they do evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandon God. Step two, uh, God's anger is uh, stirred up. Step, and he hands them over. Step three, the people cry out to God. And then we get to step four, which is in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges. 
Again, the judge is going to be this military leader. They're going to deliver the people of God, and they're supposed to guide them in religious uh, thought. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges. Why? Because they, they whored after other gods and they bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. So notice then the cycle just started over. Right? God himself, in his mercy, raised up a judge for them to save them, and they followed the Lord, and then they went right back into it. So continue, verse 18 actually helps us see that a little bit more clearly. Then whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with that judge, and that judge saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of that judge. Because the Lord was moved to pity for their groaning because of of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And the cycle then just continues. And so notice there too in verse 19 where he says they were more corrupt. And so what we're going to see then throughout the book, this, we're going to see this cycle just keep going uh, where the Step one, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Step two, God's anger was kindled up. They, he raised up their oppressors. Step three, the people cried out to God. Step four, uh, that the, he raised up a judge to rescue them. Uh, but it's going to just get worse and worse and worse. And in fact, the narratives mostly keep getting longer. All right, so that's the intro. And then from chapter three, verse seven, all the way to the end of chapter 16, we actually watch the cycles happen. So that's when we have our six uh, narratives of judges that all start out with this very phrase, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So you're going to have all six of them go um, in that order. Now, again, they're, they're tribal. Some of these are overlapping. It's not necessarily chronological in uh, that, that they were hap- like this one happened and then this one happened. Even though it reads that way, there's good textual evidence that there's overlap uh, when some of the judges are serving. But let, let's, uh, let me just show you verse 7 and following, just so you can see the actual cycle happen with a particular judge. So chapter 2 is the paradigm. Chapter 3 and following uh, actually shows it on the ground. So verse 7. The people of Israel did evil in the sight, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their, the Lord their God, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. That's step 1. Step 2. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. That's step two. God's anger was stirred up, and then he calls out a particular king that he stirred up to go against Israel. Verse nine is step three. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, here's step four, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Kishon Rishathaim. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kinez, died. Verse 12, we're going to start a new cycle. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king 
of Moab, and a new cycle starts. So this is going to happen six times, uh, these cycles of judges. Now, all of them uh, seem to have some of these elements. There's a couple that might be missing one or uh, one of the components of the cycle, which is significant. The author is intentionally doing that for us to catch something. But they all start out with that phrase, and the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the first judge, Othniel, starts off pretty good. I mean, we're not really given any negative indication about him in particular. Uh, and then we have the next one uh, being Ehud, uh, who seems, for the most part, he seems like a, a good stand-up judge. Again, we're not given any indication that there's a major evil. There could be a little bit of discussion about some of what's going on, how he acts. Uh, but then we get into chapter 4. Uh, we see uh, uh, Deborah and Barak. And uh, again, that one's a little bit questionable. Who is the judge? It's, it seems to be intentionally ambiguous. Barak is supposed to be the judge, and he's not acting very judge-like. So Deborah um, steps up, this strong woman, uh, which actually is a theme throughout the book. You have these strong women who step, fill in the gap when the men are not uh, serving as they're meant to. Uh, and so you, get this, you start getting this kind of maybe this bad taste in your mouth about Barak, and then by the time you get to chapter 6, we have Gideon come on the scene, who starts off okay, but then it goes downhill from him. Because what happens at the end of Gideon's story, uh, you actually see that Gideon uh, makes this ephod that peep, the people of Israel begin to worship. They whore after these other things that Gideon has set up into his house. And we're told that he has 70 sons because he has many wives. And suddenly you say, Ugh. You know, Gideon, the, the guy that people like to put in Bible stories is like this great hero. Not so much from the author's perspective here, not, not the way he's trying to tell the story. And in fact, it, it happens that because he had also had this child down in Shechem by, from one of his concubines, and we'll get to the, that topic uh, as we get to there, um, who his 70 other brothers kind of hate that son, and that son tries to rebel against them, kills all 70 of his sons, his brothers, except, save one. Uh, and then uh, that one that wasn't killed puts a curse on uh, Abimelech, and that's the, the son down in Shechem, as well as the leaders who helped uh, Abimelech kill his other brothers, and then uh, they end up getting killed, and Abimelech gets, ended up getting a millstone thrown on his head. It, it turns out to this be this crazy fiasco. Maybe the next judge will be a little bit better. So then we get to chapter 10, verse 6. Then Jephthah comes on the scene. Sort of a similar story. He's kind of this child from from another woman, and it's just like not this, there's this hatred between the family. And uh, Jephthah, I mean, the guy ends up killing 42,000 Ephraimites. Jephthah's destroying Israel. He's a judge of Israel. And he burns his daughter in the fire. I mean, you get through Jephthah's story and you think, oh man, this is really, really bad. And then you finally get to chapter 13, Samson. And Samson, I mean, that guy's a character. He's just, uh, let's just say he's not the sort, if he was your brother and, you know, your children wanted to go visit their uncle for the summer, you're not sending him to Samson's house. 
He's a womanizer. He's power hungry. He's quick to rage. And it ends poorly for him, having his eyes gouged out because his lust and foolish stupidity and his utter disregard for God's law. And you get to the end of uh, chapter 16 and you go, okay, I mean, I just read about some deliverers, some saviors to help the people of Israel, but those dudes were totally insufficient for the problem at hand. They were saviors nonetheless, but they were insufficient. And then we get to our art, uh, the outro. It's a double outro. You have two stories that happen. There's no more judges the rest of the book from 17 to uh, the end of the book, 21. You have two stories, and uh, both of them involving uh, the tribe of Dan somehow and the, uh, Bethlehem somehow. There's some similarity to type things like this. Uh, but, but there's no judges, and it's going to demonstrate the people, what's going on in the people themselves apart from the judges. And incidentally, most likely both of these stories happen actually right after Joshua died anyhow. So we're told that the, the grandson of Moses is still alive, the grandson of Aaron is still alive in both of the uh, respective stories. And so he's like sort of backtracked early on into earlier history to demonstrate the, the setting of the people um, and why the judges were so necessary, and why they were so insufficient. Because sin had just run so rampant, and it was so dark, there was no hope for the people. So in the first story, you have uh, this guy named Micah who steals money from his mom, and it's a lot of money, and then he finally takes it back, and she says, oh, this is really great, thanks for the money, and she has these uh, gods made out of it, and or he has gods made out of it, or whatever it is. Then he anoints one of his sons as a priest, which is a total no-no, because only Levites were supposed to be priests. So he's got now his son as a priest in his house to, to guide worship in these false gods. And then out of nowhere, this, this priest ends up walking through the town, and he hires this priest for a couple bucks and some, some lodging. And so now the uh, priest of Israel is actually living with Micah, rather than being a priest of the area, he's a priest just of this guy, and he's leading false worship. And you think, oh man, this is, this is really bad because he's a priest, and he's actually leading the way in, now in idolatry. Um, he ends up getting kidnapped by the tribe of Dan, who's trying to steal land that doesn't actually belong to them, because they didn't want to fulfill the, the promise, the region they were given, so they go to try to take, take some other land. Meanwhile, they, they take this priest and the false gods, and uh, they just sort of bully Micah around. It, it's just this weird story that's like, this is, this is not good. It's full of idolatry. This is really bad. That's the first story, chapter 17, 18. The last story from verses chapter 19, 20, and 21 is perhaps one of the darkest places in all of Scripture. It is absolutely dark. This is, this is where uh, a man uh, has a concubine. Again, we'll get to that when we get there. Um, either, either she's angry at him or she's been unfaithful to him and she, I mean, I, I don't know how a concubine could be unfaithful anyway. It's just, it's just bad, okay? So he goes to try to get her. Um, the whole scene ends up with uh, she, they, they stop at this town and uh, the men of the town, this is very like Sodom and Gomorrah, only this is actually the people of Israel, the guy shows up in the town uh, with his concubine and the people of town rally to this guy's house where he's going to stay and they beat on the house to say, we want to we know that man uh, sexually. 
and uh, instead they, they toss out the woman uh, and they abuse her all night until she, she dies. Uh, it's just this horrific story. Then he has her divided in pieces, the, the corpse sent throughout Israel, and the people then get upset. They almost totally kill the whole tribe of Benjamin, and in order to solve their problem, they have the, the leftover men of Benjamin go kidnap, kidnap, kidnap some other girls. It's just horrible, absolutely horrific. And you get to the end of the book, and you're meant to have a very bad taste in your mouth. Because remember, what the author is trying to do is to help us see how corrupt the human heart is and how desperate we are for a king. But of course, his, his argument is not just for any king, right? Because you've just seen what judges do who are not after God's own heart. You need a righteous king, one who will guide you in righteous ways, whose heart will be after God himself, one like David himself, one who would, who would guide the people towards Yahweh. But of course, uh, we all know that story. That, that can, David cannot suffice either. David had his own vices, and that caused a lot of turmoil. Right? So David, of course, has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who is the son of David, who actually sits on the righteous throne of David, who is Jesus himself. And the author then is trying to, to take our eyes up and say, we need a righteous king, but not a person, because a person is not going to solve our problem. We need God himself to be our king, the righteous king, who can solve the problem of sin and death for us and will guide us and empower us in the righteous ways that God is calling us to live. And so very much this author is trying to demonstrate to us the ins insufficient saviors that were around in Israel's day, that they could not solve the problem, and stir up a longing in the reader for a righteous king in the face of moral chaos. That's what the author's heartbeat is in this book. So that's what I understand the aim of the book. That's the structure, the aim, the goal of the, the author. I'm just going to end this. This is just going to take a couple minutes. Why, why is the book of Judges good for us as a people? Why read this book? It, this is uh, perhaps the darkest book in all of Scripture. Why is this a good book for us to, to pause, be in until right now it's scheduled for the first week of June. So you settle in for some dark, dark, uh, you know, dark, sermons, or at least the, the narrative piece, why is this good? I got seven really fast reasons. First of all, I promise it's fast. God, God declares that all scripture is profitable for us, right? Second Timothy 3, all scripture is profitable. It's God-breathed, useful for us in teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us for righteousness. All of scripture is useful for us. And so, just for that reason alone, this is a good book for us, right? To say, okay, God, God has good use for it. It's profitable to rebuke us, correct us, train us. So we want to get that. Uh, we're told that scripture is to, to make the heart rejoice and to make the, uh, the simple wise and to make us like trees planted by streams of water to give us hope. And so we trust that this book is going to do that for us. We'll do it differently than Revelation did, but it will be profitable for us uh, nonetheless. Two, 
Uh, this gives us a good mix of biblical genres, uh, different literature in the scriptures. Uh, so just, just so you're aware, uh, as we think at, through preaching here as a church, uh, we think it's good to bounce around from Old Testament to New Testament, as well as making sure we're, we're reading all the different types of literature in the scriptures. Um, because God has written the scriptures a different way. There's Old Testament narrative, there's, there's poetry, there's apocalyptic literature like we saw in Revelation, there's letters, there's prophecy. And so we just think it's good that we have a, a, a well-rounded diet. And so we try to make sure that we're bouncing around um, like that. Uh, just, yeah, so that's number two. Number three, uh, this, this is a part of the Old Testament history that, that we've never preached through as a church. Uh, so... Actually, uh, this might be fun. Who, who was here through the preaching of Deuteronomy? All right, we, we have a couple over there. Yeah, all right. So that, that, was, that was a long time ago. We preached the Deuteronomy. We also preached through 1 Samuel. And so I wonder if there, who, was, who was here for 1 Samuel, 1 2 Samuel. So there's a couple more folks. Uh, but that too was fairly... Who was here for First and Second Kings and some of the prophets? All right, so... A little bit more. Uh, and then what about Ecclesiastes? All right, so that goes up a little bit more. All right, see? So we, we try to bounce around. We've hit a, a lot of the, the history, but we haven't hit this spot right here after the Exodus uh, and uh, before the monarchy. So I'm, I'm excited. This, this hopefully continues to well-round um, our understanding of Scripture. Uh, number f- uh, four I think it's good for us to see how each of these narratives fit into the message of the book uh, and into the message of all of Scripture. So uh, we, my, my mother-in-law sent the kids some activities because we're kind of all like locked up into our house the last week and a half. Uh, so that she, she sent some activity books, uh, one for Dupree, kind of like the sticker book or something about heroes of the, heroes of the Bible. And, of course, who's in there but the long-haired hero who is... Samson, right? Now, that's very typical. That's, um, you know, one of these judges is going to show up. Uh, and th- there's nothing wrong with that. But it is very helpful to say, how is the author actually portraying that story in this setting? And so I think it's good for us, uh, if you've never really just parked in this book, to think through each of these judges and what the author is actually trying to communicate. Uh, so hopefully you'll find that helpful uh, and engaging. Uh, number five, I think this book helps us to have a realistic view of human sin throughout history. I'll just say one, one thing. Um, it, it can be common uh, for us to think that the world just keeps getting worse and worse. You read this book, and you read it slowly, and try to think about the story, and that thought will begin to change. The things that they were doing that they were saying was okay would not happen, probably, if they happened in Milwaukee. Maybe they would, maybe they wouldn't. Regardless, what my point is, things might not be getting worse. There's, it's, it's more televised, but you read some of the first, uh, first second kings when they're eating, uh, eating their children. Uh, that's not good, right? I think we can all agree with that. So I think this just gives us a very realistic view of human sin throughout history. Sin is terrible and it has corrupted the human race for all the ages. 
Uh, Number six, I think it's good for us to work through and sit in some of the dark passages of Scripture. Uh, this, This book is meant to leave a bad taste in your mouth for a moment. Uh, we, we can have the tendency to not really want to sit in that, uh, but there's goodness in that. This book is meant to warn us, to shock us about the depths of sin, the deceit of sin, and the destructiveness of it, so that we actually walk away somewhat disgusted. Well, Danik and I have been reading through the book, and the other day we were in that, uh, one of these, uh, it was chapter 19 when this whole first thing happened with uh, this woman and her being abused and such. And she, we finished the reading, and her first, she first said, like, I'm, I'm disgusted. It's very disturbing what, what's in that book. And, um, and I said, good. Like, like that's, that's what we're supposed to feel. We're, like, God's not condoning the behavior in here. It's actually meant to be stark and shock us so that it stirs us up towards something else. Right? It's, it's supposed to shock the senses in some sense. So I, I lost my, my taste uh, and, and smell midweek last week. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I, I like food. I, I like the taste of it. So I wanted to get it back. So I did some research, found out if there was any ways to get it back, right? So there, was, there is this, <laughs> this method that you can do that you take an orange uh, and you, you char it. So you do it on your stove. And the rest of the family said it smelled terrible because you're burning, you're, I mean, you burn it black, the whole thing. So you have all the oils coming off and it, it's, there's, it's just very smoky. And so you have this really black orange that I just burned on the stovetop. And then you take the outer shell out, you crush it up and you put a tablespoon of brown sugar uh, in it and you just crush it up and you eat it warm. And then 15 minutes later, boom, the, the, the taste buds come back on, at least in theory. It didn't, <laughs> it didn't really work for me. Supposedly it does for some. But from the people that say it works, I, again, this is theory. I, I didn't experience it that way. Uh, they say what it's doing is kind of like overloading the senses these, uh, whatever the receptors are and some of the, the ways you taste and smell, you're, you're overloading them so that they sort of like kick back on. And this book, as we, as we read these encounters, it's meant to sort of shock our moral fibers. Say, whoa, whoa what am I doing? How am I living? How, how is my interaction with sin? Am I pursuing holiness or am I just kind of coasting along? Because make no mistake, we are not better than these people in these stories. The last way we want to read the book of Judges is sort of have some sort of a self-righteous, I'm so glad I'm not like them. No, the reality is you would be exactly like them. Apart from God's grace, we would do the exact same thing and worse. And so it's just very good for us to sit in the dark passages because it's then, then that we will stir up towards this final point, uh, which I think this book helps us to see and to long for the relentless mercy of God, the relentless grace of God that he continues to pour out on these people. I think, I think this book should sort of stun us by the grace of God we see in the book. It, it would be a, a very sad for us to go through the whole book and not be overwhelmed by how gracious God is to the people. We, while we want to sit in the darkness, yes, but we want that to take us somewhere. So we don't want to just live like that, but we are amazed that God would be merciful. And yes, indeed, that God would even later in the, uh, in the scriptures say that even he, 
By the little faith of Samson, he worked through that. And the, the minuscule faith of Gideon, he even worked through that. And so that it stirs us up and says, what a magnificent, merciful, kind God we have. I mean, could you imagine if you had a friend whose spouse cheated on him and then he took her back and the next week she went out and did it again and he took her back and the next week she went out and did it again and he took her back and the next week she did it again and he keeps running after her. At some point you say, I, I can't believe how forgiving and merciful and gracious you are. And of course, that's the very image that God continues to use throughout the scriptures, that Israel was to be his wife, and she whored after these other gods, and God continues to run after her. And it's supposed to stun us to look and really have no response, to say, how in the world is God so merciful? And at some point, you know how God answers that? He says, I'm not like you. Don't think of me with as much patience as you. Because you would have no hope. And so somewhat like looking at a sunrise, or Dan I know Danica just loves to look at a sunrise or a beautiful sky, and she just becomes silent as, look how beautiful that is. And me, I'm tempted to brush past it. Let us not just brush past the mercy and grace of God we see displayed in this book, but receive it, be stunned by it, and then become some of the most gracious and merciful people in the city, right? Because we've experienced the mercy and grace of God ourselves. But brothers and sisters, this is not just pie in the sky, hope that God would be this gracious. We actually see it demonstrated uh, ultimately at the very cross of Christ. This book then is, is trying to drive us forward to see just how far God's grace will go to rescue his people. And so this morning we'll partake in the Lord's Supper, remembering the depths of the mercy of God that paid our penalty and then empowers us to pursue the holiness that he calls us to. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come forward, grab the elements, and return to your seat. Uh, if you're not a follower of Christ, we ask that you not partake of uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, or if you're living in rebellion against God, uh, not repenting of your sins, and we ask you not to partake. But if you're a follower of Christ, proclaim Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, risen from the dead, we ask that you come forward, grab the elements, and return to your seats. We are all people that come into the world who do what is right in our own eyes. That is the way we start out, and it's only by God's mercy that any of that will change. And because of that, we deserve the wrath of God. But brothers and sisters, you who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and have placed your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Lord Jesus in his broken body has paid the penalty in full. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. One of the great temptations sometimes in reading a book of like Judges is, is to feel that we too have no power against sin. But the new covenant that Jesus inaugurated in shedding his blood 
we are told that we are given new hearts that beat after the same drum as God. And we're given the Holy Spirit to empower us to fight against sin. So brothers and sisters, the sin that feels so strong that you can't fight it anymore. This cup, let it remind you that you have the power that you need to fight against sin. For he took the cup in the same way after supper, saying, this cup, it is the new covenant. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. Lord, we ask that as we go through this book, that you would bless our time as a people, that you would uh, stir us up to take risk for the cause of the kingdom, to trust you, to trust in your mercy, to trust in your grace. We pray for anyone here now who, who fears that maybe they outran the grace of God. Uh, show us, Lord, how, just how relentless your mercy and your grace is to us. And make us, Lord, uh, an image like that to be the most merciful, gracious people in this city. For your glory, for our good. In Christ we pray. Amen.